It's Tuesday, February 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Prosecutors on Monday released documents detailing New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft's actions at the Orchids of Asia Day Spa in Jupiter, Florida. He has been charged with two first-degree misdemeanor counts of soliciting prostitution. Investigators say Kraft was there twice in a 24-hour period, and they have video. My producer Miranda joins us for the details and how the NFL is reacting. Next, DNA testing kits started off as a novelty for amateur genealogists and has gone mainstream. Some predictions say that within the next two years, more than 100 million people may be part of a commercial genetic database. What many don't realize is that these companies are sharing your data with law enforcement, drug makers, and even app developers. Kim Hart, managing editor at Axios, joins us for why you should always read the fine print before you test your DNA. Finally, as the opioid epidemic continues to plague large swaths of the country, the small town of Little Falls, Minnesota has made progress in getting the problem under control. They didn't do anything revolutionary, they just made a real effort, spent real money, and treated the addiction as a disease instead of a crime. Dan Vergano, BuzzFeed News reporter, joins us for the blueprint they used to curb its drug epidemic. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. That would be Mr. Robert Kraft. He's being charged with the same offenses as the the others, and that is soliciting another to commit prostitution. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We're going to break down the story of New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft, and uh, he's now been charged on two counts of first-degree solicitation for prostitution. It's a crazy story. One of the richest men, one of the most powerful men in the NFL, and this story just is so odd. He is charged with visiting the Orchids of Asian Day Spa in Jupiter, Florida. Tell us a little bit about that, Miranda. So Robert Kraft's arrest was actually part of a crackdown on sex trafficking in Florida. Hundreds of arrest warrants have been issued as a result of this six-month-long investigation, and even more arrests are expected. Ten spas have been closed from Palm Beach to Orlando, and several people charged with sex trafficking have been taken into custody. Authorities were investigating these spas and massage parlors for months, gathering enough evidence through visual observation, just watching people come in and out. Interviews with the guys who were stopped leaving the spas. How awkward is that? Oh, God. They went through the trash and then they actually surveillance. The owners, judges were then able to issue warrants to allow these investigators to install secret cameras inside the spas to record what transpired. We're talking about prostitution rings, sex trafficking stuff. The women that are involved in this were living in horrible conditions. They were forced to live at the spas, cook their food in the back room, things like that. A lot of the times they weren't even allowed to leave the premises, say for a doctor's appointment or just a general errand without some kind of an escort going with them. There's two women suspected of running the operation. They're importing women from other countries, mostly China, and then forcing them to work there as sex slaves. We don't want to get it confused. Robert Kraft is not involved in this part of it, in the prostitution ring, in the sex trafficking part of it. He's just accused, along with, I think, 25 other men or so, of soliciting, of actually patronizing, going there and getting the services and paying for them. And, you know, the NFL has issued a statement saying, you know, we're going to not comment on ongoing investigation. We got to see what everything is going on. But they have said that they are going to take the appropriate action just as for any other violation that happens under their policy. Yeah, they've got a personal conduct policy. And they said that that applies equally from everyone in the NFL, from 
you know, referees and ball boys all the way up to the top to the commissioner and the owners of the teams. Part of this policy requires the owners and the players to refrain from conduct detrimental to the integrity of and public confidence in the NFL. And in the past 20 years, the NFL has at least two times sanctioned team owners for personal conduct violations. So in 2014, Indiana Colts owner Jim Irsay was suspended for six games and then fined for $500,000 after pleading guilty to a DUI. And then in 99, the league suspended the then San Francisco 49ers owner, Eddie DiBartolo Jr., for the entire season and fined him a million dollars in connection with some kind of a gambling scandal in Louisiana. And Robert Kraft, accused of soliciting prostitution, that's pretty serious. And it does put a bad stain on the NFL. Especially after just having won their sixth Super Bowl. And then especially considering all of the problems that they've had with domestic violence issues and players and investigations going wrong and or not thorough enough. It's going to be tough to square away for Robert Kraft because investigators say that they have video surveillance evidence of the sex acts going on. As a matter of fact, we have some of those details. And just in case anybody is squeamish about these things, you probably want to turn away now, but I hope you don't. Really quick, the maximum sentence as far as the uh, solicitation charges, up to a year in jail, 100 hours of community service, and then a class on the dangers of prostitution and human trafficking. He'll probably... And that's aside from what happens with the NFL, which could be suspension and penalties. Right. He probably won't see any significant type of jail time. He's a first offender, all this other stuff, but that's the possibility of what it can take. Okay, so now on to the CD details. They have video surveillance of him, and this is just coming from court documents. What do we know, Miranda? Yeah, well, we know that he visited the spa two times in less than 24 hours, January 19th for 40 minutes and January 20th for about 15 minutes. And he paid more than $200 each time he went. According to court documents, he paid for a threesome on the January 19th event with two women taking turns, quote, manipulating his genitals. Once he finished, the women cleaned him up and he gave them each a $100 bill. And then the next day, the second incident occurred on January 20th, which is the same day that the Patriots played the Chiefs in the AFC championship game, yeah, so, for which he was present. So real quick, he got there at 11 a.m. He spent about at 15, the spa. At the spa. He spent about 15 minutes there. He left, and there was a blue Bentley waiting for him. It took him to his private jet, and then he <laughs> went off to the to that game that day. What a life. Yeah. As for incident number two, officials describe it this way. An employee walked Robert Kraft back to a room. Kraft then took off all of his clothes. He laid down face up on the massage table and the employee gave him another hug and then a couple minutes later she started getting to work then put her head down there this went on for several minutes after a few minutes she then cleaned him up with a white towel helped him get dressed hugged him again and then he gave her a hundred dollars plus another bill that they weren't able to tell from the camera what it was we'll have to see what the investigation bears out what the nfl how they respond to this and men If that video ever surfaces, that's going to be some... And Palm Beach County is a wealthy county. I'm curious to see how many other high-profile individuals get busted in this sting. I've seen that there are a couple of other high-profile people. No other names have been released yet. So we'll uh, stay tuned for more details. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. Anytime that it uses its customers' DNA samples, it's first anonymized, and also that their customers give, quote-unquote, informed consent. That is explicit permission to hand over their DNA to pharmaceutical companies. They say that 80% of people opt in for this. Joining us now is Kim Hart, 
Axios Managing Editor. We're going to continue talking about genetic testing and these DNA kits that you get at home. They're they're so popular now. Just first off, the only two things I knew about these genetic testing kits for the longest time were one, I got one for Christmas a couple years ago. And then two, you started seeing all these stories related to solving cold case murders, most notably with the Golden State Killer. There was a few stories last week of this stuff coming out. So seeing these stories and, and then it started becoming a story about privacy and your genetic testing data. And a lot of people don't know that some of these companies share that data with law enforcement, with drug makers, and even app developers. Tell us a little bit more about this, Kim. As you mentioned, at-home DNA testing kits have become really popular. They started out as kind of a novelty for hobbyist genealogists who were you know, just interested about their family trees, interested about their family's uh, ancestry. And that's where 23andMe and Ancestry and some of these other companies cropped up. And all you do is, you know, you uh, send in a saliva sample and they run your DNA sequence and can tell you what percentage of your lineage is from Ireland or or from Africa, or from Australia, or what have you. And so people were really fascinated just by to figure out what their relatives were. They could even use them to track down long-lost relatives or trace their lines back to prominent people, you know, in the 1600s or whatnot. As they become more popular, these companies are actually amassing some pretty big databases of DNA data. And some of them are using them in ways that customers may not expect when they send in their sample for their own family tree purposes. I think they think, okay, no company would want my DNA right. After that, but they, that's to the contrary. Human, Everybody wants your information, right? Human DNA is actually really valuable, specifically for medical research and for pharmaceutical companies trying to develop drug product, drugs. Drug testing and drug development is it takes a very long time. Usually, it's using a lot of animal testing and on animal DNA. And if you can use it with human DNA to try to kind of pair certain DNA markers with certain traits, it can actually, what 23andMe hopes that anyway, is that it will actually speed up drug development. And so 23andMe, for its part, says that anytime that it uses its customers' DNA samples, it's first anonymized, and also that their customers give, quote unquote, informed consent. That is explicit permission to hand over their DNA to pharmaceutical companies or other researchers doing clinical trials. They say that 80% of people opt in for this, opt in for research programs. I think what a lot of people may be doing is checking the box <laughs> without maybe realizing what their information is being used for. And for the most part, you know, it's not necessarily individual data that's interesting for these research purposes as you were saying, they need this ability to look at large groups of people to see what is standing out. And just to put a number on it, within the next two years, the MIT Technology Review said that more than 100 million people may be part of some type of database with their genetic information in there. We were talking about law enforcement and some of these companies sharing information. One of the companies, Family Tree DNA, just kind of came under fire for voluntarily giving the FBI access to its database of, I think they have more than 1 million users. Yeah, somewhere between one and two million. I've seen a couple of different estimates. The situation there is Family Tree DNA made an arrangement with the FBI that allowed the FBI to log into the system as if it was another user of the system and upload DNA samples from a crime scene that they might be investigating and be able to see any users in the system that were matches. It wouldn't be able to see everyone in the system, but if it were a DNA match, it would be able to see that and then use that information to try 
try to identify uh, family members of a potential suspect, for example. The problem there is, I mean, a lot of this goes back to transparency, right, where the a lot of consumers might be okay with their DNA being used for forensic purposes to track down a violent criminal. But it's the fact that people didn't realize that their genetic data was being used in this way and that law enforcement could have access to that information without a warrant. And so that was what they really came under fire for. Family Tree DNA apologized, according to the New York Times, for not notifying its consumers, but you know, continued to defend the program and said that consumers, you know, users can opt out of the matching service on their website to make their data invisible again. But it didn't end the agreement with the FBI. Things happen so fast. These companies are reacting really to how things are changing. Is there anything that suggests that some of these DNA testing companies are doing anything malicious or, or are they really just trying to be transparent with all this stuff? Is that yeah, really I mean, sense? I think that, I mean, all the, all the companies that I talked to were actually very open about here's what we do. Here's how we work with partners. Here's how we try to make sure that they're abiding by similar privacy policies and how they all kind of talk about how important it is to make sure that they're protecting the privacy and security of their customers' information because they know how sensitive it is and they know how concerned consumers are. I think the problem with consumers, though, is that it's really easy easy to lose track of what information they've given to what company and what uh, under what conditions they have given permission for it to be shared. Every privacy policy is different, even when you're just signing up for Facebook or a fun app online. And then when you move into DNA data, that's arguably even more sensitive and more identifiable and could be more consequential if it falls into the wrong hands. And so the, the fact that it's really so easy for consumers to lose the thread, so to speak, of where their data is, if it goes through this chain of research, if it goes over to this pharmaceutical company, even if it's anonymized, some advocates have said there are potential, there is potential for it to be de-identified and then re-identified as well if you have a lot of different factors that you can connect the dots. And then if you add the advent of artificial intelligence onto that, when you have a very large data set of DNA uh, data and you have very, very smart algorithms that can go through and find matches and find anomalies, it's just hard to foresee what can happen yeah. in the future as technology continues to advance. Kim Hart, Axios Managing Editor, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. What they're doing is treating opioid use disorder and really any kind of drug use disorder as a disease, as an epidemic. So they still lock people up when they commit crimes, of course, but if they find that they have a drug disorder, then they get treated. Joining us now is Dan Vergano, BuzzFeed news reporter. We're going to talk a, a little bit about the opioid epidemic that's plaguing the country, really. One of the most vexing problems is how do we get a handle on this? How do we help fix this epidemic? How do we help the people that are, uh, you know, subjected to the hell that they go through by being addicted to opioids? And Little Falls, Minnesota, it's a small town that has really changed the game when it comes to this. They didn't do anything completely revolutionary. They just had a real effort at it. They spent a lot of money and they treated the addiction as a disease instead of a crime, instead of locking people up. They were trying to get people into treatment. Tell us a little bit about what Little Falls, Minnesota is doing, Dan. What they're doing is treating opioid use disorder and really any kind of drug use disorder as a disease, as an epidemic. 
So they still lock people up when they commit crimes, of course, but if they find that they have a drug disorder, then they get treatment. That's a radical thing to do in this country, it turns out. And likewise, if you go into the hospital and you overdose, you go into treatment. You don't wake up and you're sent on your way home. They have tied together all parts of their community towards treating drug dependency as a, as a disease and, and not as a crime, not as a war on drugs thing. And that has seems to have made a big difference in terms of people showing up at the emergency room, wanting more painkillers and things like crime. So it does seem like they have turned a corner just by doing all of the things that you got to do to deal with this. In your story, you profiled a woman named Monica Rudolph. She had it really bad. There was a point where her life was broken down into four or five hour increments of getting high because she couldn't go any longer without starting to feel any withdrawal symptoms or, or the need for more. A lot of what Little Falls did was we talked about the money that goes into this. They spent $1.4 million in state grants over the last five years on all the public health stuff that they needed to get done, limiting the prescription refills, which is super important, increasing the access to addiction medications. And then, uh, as we've been saying right now, putting users in treatment instead of jail. Yeah, and the point of the story wasn't that, hey, you got to get a grant. It's that th this whole thing costs money. And as a country, we got to get ourselves in gear. It's going to cost a lot to deal with this. But we're talking about spending $8 billion on a wall. That $8 billion would probably be much more effective in terms of these grants, in terms of halting the overdose epidemic, just to step out on a limb there on that. And, and likewise, a lot of things you spend money on aren't as effective as the kind of things you're doing here. So there's about $3 billion federally set aside for dealing with the crisis and then another $9 billion in Medicaid if, you, if your state has Affordable Care Act. But it turns out that that's nothing to what we have to do as a country to address this problem. It's going to be tens of billions of dollars, which sounds like a lot, but we spend a lot more money on things that aren't as effective already. So what this city has done essentially is created a model by applying for these leading these pilot grants and now it's serving as sort of a lab or a, a place that's sort of letting other towns know how to do this sort of thing. Talk about the success that Little Falls had specifically. They basically had was a meth problem the decade before. So they had the bones of a meth task force in place. So they knew how to tie together the community to deal with an addiction crisis already. And when they started to dial down the number of pills prescribed to people, which was the source, you know, teenagers were getting these pills from their parents and grandparents and then essentially getting hooked on the drugs. They saw, oh my gosh, if we're going to do that, we can't just leave people out to dry dependent on these things. We have to start treating them in the clinic. And it's a small enough town and a small enough hospital that they could do that with a team that was staffed 24 hours. If you call, you know, to get in the treatment. And then they looked at the next place is the jail, which is where people fall through the cracks. And they said they tied all these things together. So they have all the parts of the community working in unison now to treat the problem as a disease and not as a crime. It turned out it took them stumbling into each problem is, you know, they fixed one problem, another one reared its head. And so they had to weld it together that way, one problem at a time. Their story is a great read. And, and as I said, you Talk about Monica's journey through the process and getting treatment and kind of going full circle. Wonderful. She's a counselor now as part of this program for other people to help them get help. But a lot of it does have to do with the sheer will of coming together with a plan, figuring out what you need. And as you said, you know, that money, a lot of the uh, Little Falls and other cities did get federal grants, did get state money from the state also. And it's about putting together these effective teams to really help solve this problem. Monica is like a lot of people. She just was lucky in her hometown. You know, if she'd been in any other hometown in that state, 
pretty much, and she had called the hospital, they would have told her, come in Monday, and it wouldn't have worked. She would have gone out and had to get heroin again to get well. So, like, that's what's really happening, is we have to make it easy for people to get into treatment rather than impossible. If they're dependent where they got to get well in the next eight hours, or they're going to feel like they're going to die, that's what they're going to do. So, if we make it easier to get, go into treatment rather than doing that, then we can start to have address the, uh, this part of the problem. Dan Vergano, BuzzFeed News reporter, thank you very much for joining us. You bet. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.